this is the Anxious Conservatives podcast, hosted by MVP, Monique Valerie Poirier, Campaigns Director for the Auckland Alliance. Yep, close enough. And me, Liam, here, a writer on New Zealand politics for various outlets. And our very special guest today is Joe Ascroft, an economist and uh, I think formerly of the Taxpayers Union. Are you, are you currently on contract there, Joe? No, I'm not. No, I'm, I'm just uh, as a gun for hire for myself right now. Your, your, your hired gun um, for economics. Right. Okay. Yeah, so, pretty much. So, MVP. So, as of last week, you're no longer a business owner. Uh, so, apart from the, no. 50, so apart from the fifty percent share that you own in this podcast, you you don't you don't own any <laughs> enterprise. So, without the ballet school business, have you have you, do you feel relieved of some of your anxiety, or has it just brought to the surface other anxieties? How are you feeling? Um, it's really nice knowing that I don't have to reply to any more emails. That is nice. Um, but it's still, this week was pretty sad. So once I get over the sadness, I'll be, it'll be good. Yeah. So, I mean, you do still have to reply to emails. I mean, in theory, right? Yeah, but not those ones. <laughs> not those ones. Okay. Well, how many unread yeah. emails do you have at the moment? Actually, I'm clear. And what about text messages? 11 texts and one Facebook message. So I'm and, actually doing really well. And voicemails? Zero. Zero voicemails. Well, Although I think I've got two at the office, so yeah, it, that's not too bad actually. Joe, do you no, um? What about you? Shoot? Well, I'm <laughs> fourteen unread text messages, uh, two unlistened to uh, voicemails, and I, I choose not to disclose the, the number of emails I left unopened today. Um, it's um, <laughs> but needless to say, I'll be having to go into the office tomorrow morning and um, sending out a lot of thank you for your patience emails. Um, Joe, do you have the same fear of uh, unreasonable fear of um, contact from human beings, leaving messages? Um, yeah, definitely. So I'm a millennial, so in the first instance, I have the rule that I don't respond to voicemail. So I just mm -hmm. pretend my voicemail doesn't exist. And if anyone ever tells me that they've left a message on my voicemail, I tell them that the best way to contact me is just to text me. Uh, and also like a millennial, I had four missed phone calls today um, because I don't pick up the phone uh, and I managed to get back to two of them. So a 50% hit rate That's pretty for, good. A, for a 26 year old man isn't bad. That's pretty yeah. good. I was happy with that. Um, I mean, I um, well, the worst thing that I is, is our phones where I work, they have this flashing red light on them to indicate you know, that there's a voicemail waiting for you to listen to. And I talked to any other young person there, well, you know, including myself in that description. And it's the most stress-inducing thing to come back to the office from lunchtime and just have that red light blinking in your office, accusing you of having not listened to it. Why so have I, you why have you not duct taped it up yet and just oh, put something over it to come right, out? I, I've, yeah, I've diverted... I've diverted my, I've, I've gotten to turn off my um, voicemails, so um, it, it goes to my PA, and my, my PA gets the voicemail instead of me, um, and I had that with my phone, so if, about three or four times I've got Spark to disable voicemail on my phone, so it'll just keep ringing and ringing and then disconnect, um, but it keeps getting turned back on, like it's kind of like every time they update something, it turns on again, like they're really trying to force, uh, force voicemail on me. Anyway. We've, I think we've talked about voicemails every podcast. You want to rest, you think? Okay. It, 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 is, it looms large in my life. 
Um, Joe, do you, have anything, do you have anything else to share in relation to unreasonable anxiety? Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. But I suppose being put on the spot about anxiety produces anxiety in the first instance. <laughs> so yeah, from, uh, from, that probably you, sums it up. You've got anxiety from unprepared um, podcast hosts. Um, I'm I'm anxious about the Christmas Christmas break that's coming up, and you know that closure of New Zealand for three weeks, because uh, it feels like we, we actually do have this sort of annual lockdown every year, you know, where everything gets bottled up for three weeks. And but as a you know someone who's in a small business, you, you know that you know things will be you know, the plates are still need to be spinning and, you know, the longer you leave it to go back to it, the worse it's going to be. And then you've got the fact that the Christmas break, while always welcome, you know, brings a lot of pressures in terms of business. And, you know, it's um, January and February is often a month where a lot of money goes out and um, not a lot comes in. Mm. So, yeah, I, I wish I could be happier, less, more relaxed about the Christmas break, but it's really starting to ratchet up. And, um, I'm sure, Monique, you'll feel that, thank God, that's all you pass for the time being. Yep, yep. And I now have no excuse to not buy Christmas presents either because <laughs> I now have the time. Yep. So I, the pressure is there in a different way now. All right, well, Joe is a um, Joe's a man of many talents, um, as, as anyone knows <laughs> who follows him on Twitter. Um, but he has, um, we've asked him on today because he has an interesting theory about the polarization of politics and um without uh you know you won't be too surprised to learn that it's got to do with economics so in a in a nutshell joe what's your, what's your idea um i mean look obviously economics only plays one part to play in political polarization and, and so much of our politics in new zealand is driven by what happens overseas and I, I think primarily British and American politics and the movements we see over there around, say, identity and what have you. But I certainly think one of the real risks we have in New Zealand, and, and, and it's becoming increasingly apparent with the housing market right now, is that the country just simply isn't becoming any wealthier. Um, and, it, and that's kind of been apparent for the last 10 or 15 years or so. So I was having a little bit of a look at a Productivity Commission report over the last few days, productivity growth um, for labour markets, so what your average employee or whatever will experience is now down to 1% per year, which is, I mean, hard to put that in context for a lot of people, but it's pretty slow. It means that really over time, people are not getting that much wealthier um, every year. And then at the same time, and I mean, this has been, um, on television and the news almost every day for the last four weeks or so, the housing market's just getting completely out of control. Um, it's probably even affecting the Rongatea market. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, it's got nuts, man. Although, although, according to, yeah, according to Homes at Kota NZ, uh, after the 2020 election, my house went down by like $40,000. So, like, Jacinda Ardern has made the um, Rongatea housing market more affordable. <laughs> I don't think she's done much for Auckland or Wellington. Or bigger, or, or yeah, bigger, no, or, or, or bigger centres like Ashurst and Bunnythorpe. <laughs> oh yeah, quite. Yeah, um, Bulls is so going now. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Um, I suppose something that concerns me is that while people's incomes aren't rising, and and where they are rising, I think they're probably rising a little bit unsustainably in terms of the minimum wage going up pretty aggressively. 
um, we increasingly face this kind of fixed pie economy where because no one's getting any wealthier from the economy getting particularly stronger, the only way that increasingly any better off in life is by competing with other people in society for a fixed share of resources. So that is to say, well, if I can't expect I'll be any better off in 10 years by continuing to work uh, wherever I work, or I don't think my small business is going to get any better off because the economy is not growing substantially, or how else can I get better off? And that, say, it might be taxing other people, it might be um, saying we need more government spending, or more emotionally, and I suppose socio-politically, might say, well, who, who can we blame? Yeah. Who are the outgroups that um, bear responsibility for this? And, yeah. I mean, I, I think there's a lot to blame not, not in terms of, um, you know, God, not in terms of social groups or immigrants or anything horrific like that. We have pretty bad tax settings in terms of taxing business. So, mm. you know, across the OECD, we have one of the highest shares of revenue that comes from business rather than individuals. So it's unsurprising that businesses invest at very low rates compared to a lot of other wealthy developed countries. Um, you know, obviously we're far away is, is our corporate tax rate, which is twenty eight percent, that that um that's probably is it that sort of the higher half in the OECD? You know, you got the Irish, oh, yeah. the Irish yeah, yeah. twelve. Yeah. Oh, what what I've enjoyed a little bit over the last week or so is anytime I see anyone on Twitter calling for a more Scandinavian approach to taxation in New Zealand, is to just point them towards the corporate tax rates and. Denmark and Norway and Sweden and Finland, which are all about eight to ten points lower than what we have in New Zealand, and and what um and and this is where um certainly people in conservative circles get not angry at me, but I, I probably disagree with them to an extent. Is what the Scandinavians have worked out is that actually it's far more efficient to tax people on their labour income quite aggressively and quite progressively. And then to and then in exchange, what you can do with that revenue is keep taxes on capital, on small business, on investment, quite a bit lower. And and in that way, if you're a if you just are a salaried worker and you earn two or three hundred thousand dollars a year, yeah, you're going to be taxed pretty aggressively. But if instead you go off and start a business and you're earning two hundred thousand dollars in dividends, those get taxed yeah. at quite a bit lower rate. Um, yeah. yeah, but. But what, where, I, where I suppose taking a more of a high view look at all of this is these are all, and I mean, it's not to say that people don't understand a lot of this because I actually think the public are more tuned in to tax questions than we oftentimes give them credit for. And I think we saw quite a bit of that when Key got, in, got stuck in with the tax switch uh, in around 2010. But they're quite complicated, long-winded conversations for the media to get into. So it's a lot easier for our whole political conversation to just get into the blame game, have quite shrill, shallow conversations about who the who's to blame in society. And we're seeing a little bit of that with the housing conversation right now. So people are quite willing to get into the politics of envy and aggression and talk about capital gains taxes and wealth taxes and what have you. We all know that none of those taxes would do anything for the housing market, but people are just so angry that they will do anything. And I suppose something that concerns me, and, and, I'll, and I suppose I'll join the group of anxious conservatives on the podcast, <laughs> is um, what we saw in Ireland at the very start of this year, where Sinn Féin um, 
which I think to be um, to be kind is at least sympathetic towards the IRA or has been sympathetic towards the IRA in the past. Yep. Um, was the highest polling political party in the Republic of Ireland in no small part due to the housing crisis that Ireland faced and yeah. continues to face. It is a, and I think it, we just need to be very wary of... It, it is a real concern. Um, there are a couple of things you, you've sort of raised that are really interesting. So, um, you know, it's really always funny to me how Libs, you know, their, their worship of Scandinavian economies is so unencumbered by knowledge of them. Like they don't they yeah. they also they also tax consumption pretty aggressively there too, right? Oh oh yeah, heavily, heavily. Um like, and, like and, and, plus, you know, on, on the GSTs oh, or the VATs. Oh, it's just and and they're just generally, you know, we, we complain about the cost of living here. The cost of living in a lot of those countries was horrendous. I remember I, I, I was in Copenhagen at one point a few years ago and I went in to get a coffee one morning and it was um nine dollars fifty in New Zealand for a um oh for a latte in downtown Copenhagen. And I thought that was horrendous and I talked to some people there and they just thought it was all very normal. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the other so the other thing is um you know I think you hit the nail on the head um about you know what the concern about the housing crisis is. So you know people turn to you know solutions like a capital gains tax or a wealth tax or something, not because they expect it's going to do anything and practical, but because it's sort of like a moral or spiritual issue for them now. And they just want to get their pound of flesh out of it, you know, whether it does any good or not. And that's, that's probably not a really healthy um, instinct um, for a country to have if you're hoping to get really good sort of a good tax setting, um, good tax settings, right? But you're replacing the idea of taxation um, financing the state in an efficient way with the idea of um, taxation being there to punish your class enemies. Well, well, quite. I mean, you know, for example, oftentimes you'll hear from the libs, as you as you called them earlier, Liam, that, you know, it's really dangerous for us to have this, re, you know, retributive approach to justice where what we want out of the justice system is to throw people in jail for the sake of it because we're angry. Um, because instead we need an evidence-based approach to justice where we need to have this rehabilitative approach because that gets better justice outcomes over the long run. And all I would ask of the libs is to take the same approach to tax, which is to say perhaps instead of having this vindictive approach to trying to confiscate wealth and allowing your emotions to get out of control, perhaps we need to have an evidence-based approach to tax and, as you say, finance the uh, state efficiently the lips are going to be after you for those comments, Joe. Oh God, that God, that's God, that's a good analogy though. That's clever. Wish I'd thought of that because it's um like it's so apt. It's you know, you know, it's uh, it, it's it's the idea of retribution rather than um, doing what works. Um, mm. Yeah, no, I'm going to have to use, steal that one off you, Joe. I think. I mean, I'm all for using the libs logic on them. Um, yeah. Because that that's a key that's a key plank <laughs> of owning the libs. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Uh, yeah, to, to turn to turn it around on them. Yeah, no, I I, I quite agree. Okay, no, I mean, uh, so um, you talked you talked about how you know New Zealand's productivity has been pretty flat. I mean, is I mean, you hear a lot about how wages have been stagnant, you know, across the Western world for some time or throughout the developed world for some time. Do we perform worse compared to our peer our peers? Um, 
I mean, certain, certainly over the last 15 years or so, things have slowed down quite a bit. Productivity growth was actually pretty strong in the early 2000s, and we did really well in the 1990s as well. Um, you know, ro Rogernomics, for all its social consequences, did bear us out some dividends through the 90s. So I think we probably don't bear out in terms of the comparisons of the, the data of the United States. We can really see from the 70s onwards that the middle class stagnated. Um, that our worst performance is really over the last 10 or 15 years, and we have to work that out because, yeah, it's just bad. It's not is going it, well. Is it possible that there just isn't a fix? I mean, like, I, I wonder sometimes how much of our expectation that things will continue to grow and that everybody will continue mm. to see some sort of improvement sort of reflects a sort of set of, set of circumstances in which the boomers sort of came of age you know you had the destruction of world war ii followed by sort of this global golden age of capitalism and you know how much of that is was the thing that's unusual and how much are we returning to a, a sort of a norm where growth is slower and much more uh, and, and much harder to get. I'm, I'm optimistic in one sense and pessimistic in another sense. So I, I'm optimistic on the basis that our tax settings for business are so distortionary that if we were able to get that right, I think we'd see some pretty obvious and dramatic capital deepening. And I think at least for New Zealand, even ignoring the global trend away from, I suppose, towards great stagnation as, as it's been dubbed, it, there's a little bit of differentiation there. I am a little bit pessimistic just on the basis of, of distance. And I know this turns up in the conversation all the time, and it's been in the conversation for decades. But we, we tell ourselves this great lie that we're on the backyard of Asia Pacific and that we're proximate to all this amazing dramatic growth that's happening throughout Southeast Asia and these places. You know, we're actually not that close. We're thousands of miles away. Uh, I, I read somewhere the other day that a tanker can get from Shanghai to London faster than it can from Shanghai to Auckland. Um, oh, wow. We're, we're, we're I mean, actually it, like... Yeah, I mean, it, make, it makes some sense if you actually stop and think, think it through. Yeah. Uh, yeah that, well, that's stark. To put it that way, it's quite stark, though. Yeah, we're, we're, we're a long way away from everywhere. And you would hope that technology could ameliorate some of that tyranny of distance. Um, but at least in the first order, there's some pretty obvious policy settings that we could change and really improve our, improve our stock. Um, you're, you're right about the, no... the, the lack of access to capital is, is, a, is a big thing in this country. And I do a lot of work with startups. You know, like there's a lot of startups in Palmerston North as a as university town. And the thing that they struggle for, you know, I'd, I'd go and I'll do their shareholders agreements and their, you know, um, the employee share option schemes and things. And it's always, always has to be done off the smell of an oily rag. There, there just aren't local mm. sources of capital or investment to actually do it properly from the start. Yeah. And, and to be fair with the startup scene, there's a chicken and egg problem and that they need, obviously they need capital um, but they also need customers locally as well because if, 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 they're, if they're able to get enough capital but there's not enough customers here and it doesn't make sense long term, they end up leaving. And that's in part the story of why Zero's listed on the ASX rather than the NZX now and why um, despite this great lie that we tell ourselves about having a space company in New Zealand, um, <laughs> that, that our major space, well, it actually operates out of California. 
Yeah. And, yeah. and there are some flights, there are some flights that happen off the Mahia Peninsula, but in reality, very little of the work actually happens here. Oh, that's, that's all very cheery. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry, anxious conservatives. No, you're replacing, my, you're replacing uh, anxiety with uh, fatalism. <laughs> yeah. anxiety, anxiety is only because you think you can do something about it. <laughs> anyway, listen, there's good um, pessimism is a core uh, tenet of conservatism, I think. A certain, a certain realism, anyway, about these things. Um, look, the other thing that happened in the news recently has been the Speaker of the House of Representatives, um, Trevor Mallard, sort of just sort of beclowning himself, um, you know, not for the first time uh, either. And so today, well, it came out today, I think, that, um, the, so, I mean, for those who don't know, uh, basically he uh, accused one of his employees as a parliamentary, uh, somebody who worked at parliament, for parliamentary services, of being a rapist, um, which was false. And as a result of that, um, we've, you know, the, the, you know, there's been a court case, a, a civil suit brought against him and uh, that settled and the cost of the taxpayer was 330,000 or something like that. I mean, both of you are sort of um, linked to the to taxpayer activism, I guess. So what are, you, what are your thoughts about the taxpayer shelling, that, shelling out for that? For me, I, first of all, it seems very low. The figure seems very low. I actually expected it to be much higher. Um, but also, considering where I work, I think it's probably fair to say that everyone will expect uh, it should not be paid for by the taxpayer. And I what actually you, think the rest of New Zealand thinks that too. What do you, what do you reckon, Joe? I maybe maybe this is um, heresy of me, but I don't really have a problem. So. Obviously, no. a huge mis obviously a huge mistake for him to do it in the first instance, yeah. but I don't think I really have a problem with, you know, when an officer of parliament clearly acting in their role does something like that, that the costs are borne by the public. That, that mm -hmm. I mean, I think we get into some pretty awkward scenarios where officers of parliament acting in their capacity as an officer of parliament make statements that they're then required to make the cost of that defamation. That seems yeah. very odd to me. I'm sorry, Monique. I I, have to, I agree with Joe because to me, I think, well, look, oh. in, any, in any employment situation, if you're doing something in your capacity at that work, yeah. you know, your work is vicariously liable for what you've what you've done. Um, and I think you know the remedy that we have is um, you know not to vote for a party that will put up um, mm. such a yeah. serial yeah. offender as a um, as as a speaker of the house. You know, such a plainly Do you want to just run through some of those things, Liam? Run oh, through some of his offenses. Well, we only have um, we only have a few minutes left on the podcast, but you know, like that it's endless. I mean, he was you know he 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 punched somebody outside um, the house of the debating chamber and pled guilty to fighting in a public place. He called um, uh, Chris Finlayson, he used to call Chris Finlayson a gay National MP Tinkerbell in the house. Um, he, um, he brought up um, MPs' marital, marital um, troubles. Um, he was accused I, I of think of all the things, I think of all the, the things that he did, which are despicable, the worst is definitely bringing up um, politicians' private lives. It's yeah. despicable. And then, and then he couldn't handle it when it was thrown back at him. I mean, he scalped, mm. he ripped off teenagers by scalping tickets to concerts. You know? Oh, yeah, that, that was quite a good one. Um, <clears throat> and the, the, I mean, the most obvious remedy is that Parliament can and perhaps should replace the Speaker. Um, yeah, do you I think mean, they will, though? I, I, I doubt no, it. 
Has, has Jacinda Ardern ever shown any teeth for any kind of confrontation within her own party? Not, no. I mean, you know, she, she put up with a lot from Winston Peters and Shane Jones without saying anything. She's not going to have a go at Trevor Mallard. She just, just doesn't have it in her. There's no other obvious candidate for speaker either, really. No. I mean, there is a, there's, a good, there's a tradition in New Zealand of having speakers from the other party, from the um, opposition mm. party, um, but that's more sort of when the sort of, um, you know, things have been very close and the government's tactically tried to, um, mm. you know, uh, re- reduce the influence of the opposition. Not not a, um, a factor here because the opposition has no influence at all um, or, or sway. And, and the, it doesn't exist that goodwill. But, you know, uh, the, Trevor Mallard, just, he's been around too long. He's too much of a big fish to, to push around, really. Um, and I don't think the Prime Minister or anyone would have the stomach for that fight. I think it would be really interesting to hear from the Green Party in the coming days on whether yeah. they think Trevor Mallard is an appropriate Speaker of Parliament. And perhaps they should put someone up um, yeah. for Speaker. Has anyone from the Greens said anything? I don't think they have and probably they won't. They, they tend to be missing in action when it's. I mean, that that the, they used they hold themselves out as being the most principled party, and in tr- in truth, they used to be pretty principled. Um, you know, back in those in the early days of the MP, they really did sort of stand out in a lot of ways. Um, but you know, we had Ricardo Menendez March, um, you know, making that mm. false accusation against Bob Jones, um, and then not acknowledging his prejudice there. He was supported by Golriz mm-hmm. uh, Garriman, who, um, you know, has a history as, as well of saying false things and mm. then sort of, uh, you know, not um, not fronting up for it. So, you know, if, if the Greens were going to do anything about it, it would have been the Greens of yesterday, not the Greens of today, really. The, the sort of the newer cohort of Greens, mm. they don't have that same spirit within them that the old party did. They, um, they kind of don't hold back when it comes to what Jacinda Ardern said about taxes, though, in the past. And... Um, especially with the capital gains tax, especially on Twitter. Yeah, that's true. I mean, and James Shaw, um, who I who I actually really like, James Shaw. I have a lot of time for him. Um, he he did actually criticise the government, and he he pushed against them on the wealth tax even during the campaign. Mm. Um, and you know, it would be really interesting to see what would have happened if um, you know Labor needed the Greens. Um, but I mean, yeah. that, that, I mean, at the moment. Labour is just so ascendant that there's no way that they, you know, there's, there's no influencing them really. They're just too, they're too powerful. And with that power comes arrogance. Right. Okay. So look, we're actually running out of time, but that was actually a really interesting talk, Joe. We, we probably need to have you on more often. Oh, good. Rather, I'm yeah. sorry. I didn't really say much because I was actually really interested. Oh, and also, oh, I like no. it. Oh. And also, Monique, you've got a real motor mouth, loud mouth for a co-host. So, <laughs> look, that was a really good talk, and um, look, we'll look to have you on again because it's you know you, you should write you should write that up as an, as an article, Joe, because it is. I think you've really got. Yeah, something. I should. <laughs> we need to get around to it. Well, yeah. look, so we've had we've had a few chats. With, oh, well, I've had a few chats with Joe about papers he should be writing. So yeah. we'll just add that to the list, shall we? Yeah, the list. Right. Yeah, well, I look, really, I really should get writing. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have um, for this podcast. So many this thanks. Is good timing because my foot is cramping. So good timing. Well, many, many thanks to co-host MVP and to special guest Joe. And this is me, Liam, here saying goodbye. Goodbye.